This is American Origin Stories. Calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. In this episode, let's do three readings. One from Dr. King, a short one from Malcolm X, and then let's close out with James Baldwin. The historical, the theological, and the poetic context for Dr. King's agenda and its relevance to today. So these are going to be some challenging readings. These are heartbreaking. They're illuminating. They're empowering. And I think they're also very necessary. So let's jump in. The first reading is from 1963 where Dr. King talks about the role of the church from his perspective as an American Baptist minister and the role of police officers. Dr. King wrote this while sitting in a Birmingham, Alabama jail, where he was imprisoned for protesting segregation. Quote, I have heard numerous religious leaders of the South call upon their worshipers to comply with a desegregation decision because it is the law. But I have longed to hear white ministers say, follow this decree because integration is morally right and the Negro is your brother. Now that's his word. I just want to pause for a second and say, out of respect to the integrity of Martin Luther King, his words and this letter, I'm going to quote it directly. Continuing on, quote, In the midst of blatant injustices inflicted upon the Negro, I have watched white churches stand on the sidelines and merely mouth pious irrelevancies and sanctimonious trivialities in the midst of a mighty struggle to rid our nation of racial and economic injustice. I have heard so many ministers say, quote, those are social issues which the gospel has nothing to do with. I meet young people every day whose disappointment with the church has risen to outright disgust. I am impelled to mention one other point in your statement that troubled me profoundly. You warmly commended the Birmingham police for keeping order and preventing violence. I don't believe you would have so warmly commended the police force if you had seen its angry, violent dogs 
literally biting six unarmed, nonviolent Negroes. I don't believe you would so quickly commend the policemen if you would observe their ugly and inhuman treatment of Negroes here in the city jail, if you would watch them push and curse old women and young girls, if you would see them slap and kick old men and young boys, if you would observe them as I did on two occasions, refuse to give us food because we wanted to sing our grace together. I'm sorry that I can't join you in your praise for the police department. He goes on. I wish you had commended the Negro demonstrators of Birmingham for their sublime courage, their willingness to suffer, and their amazing discipline in the midst of the most inhuman provocation. One day the South will recognize its real heroes. They will be the James Merediths, courageously and with a majestic sense of purpose, facing jeering and hostile mobs and the agonizing loneliness that characterizes the life of the pioneer. As an aside, that James Meredith is the first African-American student who was ever admitted to the racially segregated University of Mississippi. Dr. King goes on talking about what should be the new heroes of the South. Quote, they will be old, oppressed, battered Negro women, symbolized in a 72-year-old woman of Montgomery, Alabama, who rose up with a sense of dignity and with her people decided not to ride the segregated buses and responded to one who inquired about her tiredness with ungrammatical profundity. My feet's is tired, but my soul is rested. They will be young high school and college students young ministers of the gospel and a host of their elders courageously and nonviolently sitting in at lunch counters and willingly going to jail for conscience's sake. One day the South will know that when these disinherited children of God sat down at lunch counters, they were in reality standing up for the best in the American dream and the most sacred values in our Judeo-Christian heritage. End quote. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. The next reading is from Malcolm X, two years later, in 1965. Malcolm X's home in New York City had just been bombed, but he kept his long-standing speaking commitment in Detroit, Michigan, anyway. And in that speech... He talks about the 1960s equivalent of the post-racial America. They were talking about it all the way back then. The white backlash to civil rights was always trying to pat itself on the back for the status quo, 
pretend the past and present away in service to doing nothing. This kind of absurdist talk goes back to well before Obama was in office. So Malcolm X says this, quote, If you'll notice in 1963, everyone was talking about the centennial of progress. I think that's what they called it. A hundred years since the signing of the Emancipation Proclamation, and everyone is celebrating how much white and black people have learned to love each other in America. You probably remember how they were talking in January of 1963. Well, if you had stood up in January at the same time that they were talking all this talk about a good year ahead, good things ahead, and told them that by May, Birmingham would have exploded, and Bull Connor would be known as an international thug for the brutality that he heaped upon black people. As an aside, if you don't know, Bull Connor was the famous white supremacist police commissioner who became famous for turning fire hoses and police attack dogs on people marching for basic human rights, including children. Back to Malcolm X. Quote, If you would tell the people in January of 63 that John F. Kennedy would be killed for his role in everything, if you had told them in January that Medgar Evers would be murdered and nobody able to bring his killer to justice, or if you were to have told them in January of 1963 that a church would be bombed in Birmingham with four little black girls blown to bits while they were praying and serving Jesus, why they would say you were crazy. In 1964, they started out the same way. That was the year of promise. If you were to have told them while they were talking about this great year of promise ahead, you know, civil rights and all that, what was coming, that before long, three civil rights workers would be brutally murdered and the government unable to do anything about it. A Negro educator in Georgia brutally murdered in broad daylight and the men who did it be known and the government not able to do anything about it. If you had said this in January of 64, they'd say you were nuts. Now they're starting out 1965 the same way, talking about the great society, you know, anti-poverty. If you tell them right now what is in store for 1965, you'll think, they'll think you're crazy, for sure. But 1965 will be the longest and hottest and bloodiest year of them all. It has to be. Not because you want it to be, or I want it to be, or we want it to be, but because the conditions that created these explosions in 1963 are still here. The conditions that created explosions in 64 are still here. You can't say that you're not going to have an explosion and you leave the condition, the ingredients, still here. As long as those ingredients, explosive ingredients, remain, then you're going to have the potential for explosion on your hands. End quote. One week later, on February 21st, Malcolm X was killed as he began to give a presentation in Harlem. He was 39 years old. Martin Luther King Jr. was killed three years later, also at 39 years old. We're going to close out today's episode with a reading from James Baldwin. This is an essay that he wrote called Malcolm and Martin. Quote, Since Martin's death in Memphis and that tremendous day in Atlanta, something's altered in me. Something's gone away. Perhaps even more than the death itself, the manner of his death has forced me into a judgment concerning human life and human beings, 
which I have always been reluctant to make. Indeed, I can see that a great deal of what the knowledgeable would call my lifestyle is dictated by this reluctance. Incontestably, alas, most people are not, in action, worth very much. And yet every human being is an unprecedented miracle. One tries to treat them as the miracles they are, while trying to protect oneself against the disasters they've become. This is not very different from the act of faith demanded by all those marches and petitions while Martin was still alive. One could scarcely be deluded by Americans anymore. One scarcely dared expect anything from the great, vast, blank generality. And yet one was compelled to demand of Americans, and for their sakes, after all, a generosity, a clarity, and a nobility which they did not dream of demanding of themselves. Part of the error was irreducible in that the marchers and petitioners were forced to suppose the existence of an entity which, when the chips were down, could not be located. That is, there are no American people yet. Perhaps, however, the moral of the story and the hope of the world lies in what demands not of others, but of oneself. However that may be, the failure and the betrayal are in the record book forever and sum up and condemn forever those descendants of a barbarous Europe who arbitrarily and arrogantly reserve the right to call themselves Americans. Baldwin goes on to talk in detail about the funeral and then the end. Quote, Reverend Ralph David Abernathy asked a certain sister to sing a song which Martin had loved. Once more, said Ralph David, for Martin and for me. And he sat down. The long, dark sister, whose name I do not remember, rose, very beautiful in her robes, and in her covered grief, and began to sing. It was a song I knew. My father watches over me. The song rang out, as it might, over dark fields long ago. She was singing of a covenant a people had made long ago with life and with that larger life, which ends in revelation and which moves in love. He guides the eagle through the pathless air. She stood there and she sang it. How she bore it, I do not know. I think I have never seen a face quite like that face that afternoon. She was singing it for Martin. And for us. And surely he remembers me. My heavenly father watches over me. At last, we were standing and filing out to walk behind Martin home. I found myself between Marlon and Sammy. I had not been aware of the people when I had been pressing past them to get to the church, but now, as we came out and I looked up the road, I saw them. They were all along the road, on either side. They were on all the roofs, on either side. Every inch of ground, as far as the eye could see, was black with black people. And they stood in silence. It was the silence that undid me. I started to cry, and I stumbled. And Sammy grabbed my arm. We started to walk. I don't think that any black person can speak of Malcolm and Martin without wishing that they were here. It is not possible for me to speak of them without a sense of loss and grief and rage, and with the sense furthermore of having been forced 
to undergo an unforgivable indignity, both personal and vast. Our children need them, which is indeed the reason that they are not here, and now we, the blacks, must make certain that our children never forget them. For the American Republic has always done everything in its power to destroy our children's heroes. With the clear and sometimes clearly stated intention of destroying our children's hope, this endeavor has doomed the American nation. Mark my words. Malcolm and Martin, beginning at what seemed to be very different points, for brevity's sake we can say north and south, though for Malcolm, south was south of the Canadian border, and espousing or representing very different philosophies, found that their common situation south of the border so thoroughly devastated what had seemed to be mutually exclusive points of view that by the time each met his death, there was practically no difference between them. Before either had had time to think their new positions through or indeed to do more than articulate them, they were murdered. Of the two, Malcolm moved swiftest and was dead soonest, but the fates of both men were radically altered, I would say frankly sealed, the moment they attempted to release the black American struggle from the domestic context and relate it to the struggles of the poor and the non-white all over the world. To hold this view, it is not necessary to see CIA infiltrators in or under every black or dissenting bed. One need merely consider what the successful promulgation of this point of view would mean for American authority in the world. Slaveholders do not allow their slaves to compare notes. American slavery, until this hour, prevents any meaningful dialogue between the poor white and the black in order to prevent the poor white from recognizing that he, too, is a slave. The contempt with which American leaders treat American blacks is very obvious. What is not so obvious is that they treat the bulk of the American people with the very same contempt. But it will be sub-zero weather in a very distant August when the American people find the guts to recognize this fact. They will recognize it only when they have exhausted every conceivable means of avoiding it. In the meantime, in brutal fact, all of the institutions of this nation, from the schools to the courts, to the unions, to the prisons, and not forgetting the police, are in the hands of that white majority which has been promising for generations to ameliorate the black condition. And many white Americans would like to change the black condition if they could see their way clear to do so through the unutterable accumulation of neglect, sorrow, rage, despair, and continuing, overriding, totally unjustifiable death. The smoke over Attica recalls the bombs of Birmingham. Baldwin goes on, quote, It is unlikely that any Western people, and certainly not the Americans, have the moral resources needed to accomplish the deep and mighty transformation which is all that can save them. Such a transformation involves unimaginable damage to the American ego, would reduce all the American religious ceremonies, including the Fourth of July and Thanksgiving, to the hypocritically bloody observances many of us have always known them to be, and would shed too unsparing a light on the actual dimensions and objectives of the American character, 
White Americans do not want to know what many non-whites know too well. For example, that foreign aid in the underdeveloped countries and anti-poverty programs in the ghetto are simply a slightly more sophisticated version of the British policy of divide and rule, are, in short, simply another means of keeping a people in subjection. Since the American people cannot, even if they wished to, bring about black liberation, and since black people want their children to live, it is very clear that we must take our children out of the hands of this so-called majority and find some way to expose this majority as the minority which it actually is in the world. For this we will need and we will get the help of the suffering world, which is prevented only by the labyrinthine stratagems of power from adding its testimony to ours. No one pretends that this will be easy, and I myself do not expect to live to see this day accomplished. What both Martin and Malcolm began to see was that the nature of the American hoax had to be revealed, not only to save black people, but in order to change the world in which everyone after all, has a right to live. One may say that the articulation of this necessity was the word's first necessary step on its journey toward being made flesh. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests where we talk about all sorts of topics, and sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot-button issues, and it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored.